This is a publication of the Pittsburgh G20 Resistance Project called An Introduction to the G20, IMF, and Economic Crisis, alternately titled 20 People Commanding 6.7 Billion, The Boot Stamping on Your Face, and Meet the G That Killed Me, We Be Running Shit Like Diarrhea. A foreword. On Thursday, May 28th, White House officials announced that President Barack Obama would be hosting the G20, a group of economic leaders from the world's 20 most powerful economies at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center in Pittsburgh on September 24th and 25th. The announcement came as a huge shock for just about everyone. Typically, these meetings of major world leaders are held in major commercial centers like New York, London, Berlin, or Beijing. The surprise announcement left people in Pittsburgh and around the world asking what this all meant. Why did the Obama administration pick for the location of this summit a mid-sized city still reeling from the steel crisis of the 80s? And perhaps more importantly, what is the G20 in the first place? The G20. G20 is an abbreviation for the group of 20 finance ministers and central bank governors. It is a loose formation that brings together the finance ministers and the heads of the central banks from the world's most powerful countries. Together, the G20 countries account for 85% of the global gross national product at about 80% of world trade. The G20's mandate. The G20 is an informal forum that promotes open and constructive discussion between industrial and emerging market countries on key issues related to global economic stability by contributing to the strengthening of the international financial architecture and providing opportunities for dialogue on national policies, international cooperation, and international financial institutions, the G20 helps to support growth and development across the globe. Simply put, the architects of the G20 see the meetings as an opportunity to get together to discuss serious global financial issues and develop a collective path forward. Structure the G20 is comprised of the finance ministers and central bank governors of 19 powerful countries and the presidency of the European Union. Also at the table are the head of the European Central Bank, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, the president of the World Bank, the president of the International Monetary and Finance Committee, and the chairman of the Development Committee. G20 Member Countries while most of the world's largest economies are represented at the G20, the G20 does not actually include the world's 20 largest economies by any measure. The group interestingly excludes some major economic powerhouses while including some countries' smaller economies. Looking purely at GDP at nominal prices, Taiwan, Switzerland, Norway, Iran, Spain, the Netherlands, Poland, Belgium, Sweden, Austria, Greece, Denmark, and Iran, all have economies larger than G20 member countries, South Africa and Argentina. Looking at another measure, purchasing power parity rates, Taiwan, Iran, Thailand, Spain, Netherlands, and Poland are all excluded, even though they outrank G20 member countries, South Africa, by that metric as well. Some European countries, including Switzerland, Norway, Spain, the Netherlands, Poland, and Belgium, are partially represented at the G20 through their membership in the European Union, but they are still excluded from a full seat at the table. Part of this discrepancy can be attributed to changes in the global economy. The G20 first met in 1999, 
and the global economy has significantly shifted in the decades since its inception. However, the G20 has not changed its membership. Additionally, we might assume that some countries are included and excluded for political reasons. Because of Iran's assertive military stance in the Middle East, the existing economic powers are likely reluctant to invite the emerging economic powerhouse into the forum. At the same time, South Africa, which ranks 35th in the nominal GDP rate list and 25th on the PPP GDP list, has historically been a strong political player in bringing developing countries together to combat neoliberalism policies from the global north, so it is likely that the larger economies are apprehensive about pushing such a politically powerful country and the only G20 member from Africa out of the process. How it works. The G20 is a relatively informal structure that operates without any sort of set process or formal charter. The group has a chair, which rotates annually among its members, and each year is selected from a different regional grouping of countries. The chair is part of a revolving three-member committee called the Troika. The Troika includes the group's past, present, and future chairs, and is responsible for ensuring continuity in the G20's work and management across post years. Behind closed doors. The actual operations of the G20 happen behind closed doors. Only the member countries and invited guests from major international financial institutions are invited into the room. There is no public agenda, no opportunity for public comments or input, and no public minutes from the proceedings. The public's only insight into what happens inside the G20 meetings is a brief press statement that the member countries make at the conclusion of the summit. While we have no idea what actually happens behind the closed doors of the G20 summits, we can imagine that the more economically and politically powerful countries control the process and use their economic, political, and military leverage over delegates from emerging economies to corral them into line. The policy prescriptions coming out of the G20 generally end up supporting the economic interests of major commercial banks, financiers, and multinational corporations without addressing the serious economic troubles that developing countries are facing. Throughout its existence, the G20 has been an aggressive and unapologetic supporter of free trade policies that require countries to open their markets to cheap imports and generate violent and rapid restructuring and instability as local economies are steamrolled by global production shifts and market fluctuations. In the face of economic instability, the G20 has generally advanced the use of temporary loans from international financial institutions that lock developing nations struggling to respond to economic fluctuations into a subservient debtor relationship with the world's wealthier and more powerful nations. The other G's. While the G20 has only been around for about a decade, similar summits bringing together leaders from capitalist economies have been happening for more than three decades. In 1973, a coalition of major oil-producing countries, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, announced an oil embargo in response to the U.S. decision to resupply the Israeli military during the Yom Kippur War. The Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries announced that it would halt shipments of oil to the United States and any other country supporting Israel in the conflict. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, independently imposed a 70% increase in the posted price of oil, 
Immediately, the price of oil shot through the roof, causing a crash in the stock market and a major economic crisis for the world's industrialized, oil-dependent countries. Immediately, it became clear to the major industrialized economies in the global north that their firm grip on the global economy was being threatened. Although they maintained a firm stranglehold on much of the world's military and industrial infrastructure, without collaboration, they were fundamentally vulnerable to economic pressure from resource-rich countries. In 1974, in the aftermath of the oil crisis, the United States convened the Library Group, a meeting of senior financial officials from the United Kingdom, West Germany, Italy, France, and Japan in Washington, D.C. The meeting was called for the express purpose of creating a space for the capitalist industrialized economies to collude and collaborate to maintain their strong economic and political positions in the global landscape. Coming out of the library meeting, the six participants formed the Group of Six, G6. The newly formed alliance would meet annually to foster better coordination and collaboration. The next year, 1975, Canada was invited to join the summit, and the G6 became the G7. And then there were eight, but sometimes seven. In 1994, well after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russian officials were invited to the Naples G7 summit to participate in some of the group's discussions. For the next three years, Russia was invited to participate in some meetings for discussion of political developments, but because of its weak post-Soviet economy, was excluded from the group's economic discussions. Then in 1997, Russia was invited to join the group, and the G7 became the G8. Still, however, the G7 holds occasional meetings without Russia to discuss major global economic developments. Opening up, breaking in. Since its inceptions, the G8 had been plagued by critiques from developing countries and civil society organizations asserting that the group was too exclusive, controlled too much power over the rest of the world, and failed to incorporate voices from the global south. In response to these critiques, and in hopes of convincing developing economies to participate in some of the G8's free trade schemes, global leaders convened a meeting of 22 of the world's largest economies in Washington, D.C. in 1998. The next year, a similar meeting was held incorporating leaders from 33 countries from around the world, and later in 1999, the group was whittled back down to 20. That group of 20 countries became what is now known as the G20, and has been meeting every year since. The G20 was not designed to replace the G8, it was meant to augment it. Since 1999, both the G8 and the G20 have met independently each year, almost always in different countries. Also, starting in 2005, the G8 began inviting other emerging economic powerhouses to participate as observers in side meetings after the official summit. These expanded meetings, which include South Africa, Brazil, India, Mexico, and China, have been nicknamed the G8 plus 5. But not all of these global meetings have included the traditionally powerful G8 countries. In the run-up to the 2003 WTO ministerial in Cancun, Mexico, a group of 20 developing countries issued a common proposal on agriculture protesting developed countries' use of agricultural subsidies and tariffs. This G20, which has been led primarily by emerging economies including Brazil, China, India, and South Africa, has continued to meet relatively regularly. The group's membership has fluctuated since its creation, 
but currently the group has 23 members, although it still calls itself the G20. The Crisis over the past two years, a series of collapses that have cascaded through the housing sector, the commodity sector, the credit and financial services sectors, and the manufacturing sectors have created the biggest economic downturn since the Great Depression. In 2008, in the United States alone, more than 2.6 million people lost their jobs and more than 3 million families lost their homes to foreclosure. The collapse started when a cyclical downturn in the housing market caused tens of thousands of homeowners with so-called subprime loans to default in the terms of their loans. Then the huge spike in mortgage defaults caused the value of mortgages trading on the open market to collapse. Holding little cash, huge liabilities, and trillions of dollars in bad mortgages, banks stopped lending, creating a crisis in the consumer credit markets. Since the economies of the most developed countries have been driven by consumers buying goods on credit not with cash, the credit crisis created a crash in the demand for consumer products. That crash in demand for consumer products created a related collapse in the manufacturing sector, and the collapse in the manufacturing sector created an unprecedented spike in unemployment. The exact course of events that led to the current financial crisis is something that will likely be debated for decades, but at the root of the problem is a global financial and economic system that is based on power, exploitation, speculation, and mass consumption. The capitalist states respond. As the system crumbled through the fall of 2008 and spring of 2009, the capitalist states scrambled to revive the economy and restore order to the financial markets. Individually, national governments offered huge loans to failing banks bought toxic assets to pull them off the books of private banks helped to broker huge buyouts and acquisitions and even took control of some major banks but still the crisis proved too big and too global to be addressed by any single national government in april of 2009 the g20 convened in a special summit in london that would bring together the heads of state from each member country in addition to the finance ministers and central bank heads who typically participate in G20 summits. Following the summit, which occurred behind closed doors amid huge street demonstrations, leaders emerged to announce a $1.1 trillion package to attempt to bail out the global economy. The global bailout package included up to $750 billion for the International Monetary Fund, a trade finance package worth $250 billion, and at least $100 billion in additional lending by the multilateral development banks. G20 leaders spoke optimistically about rebuilding a more sustainable economy out of the collapsed shell of the old economy. To date, however, no real recovery has taken root as homes continue to be foreclosed on and workers continue to receive layoff notices. The International Monetary Fund the major instrument of lending in the G20's recovery plan, taking control of up to $750 billion, will be the International Monetary Fund. The IMF was created as part of the Bretton Woods system, the post-World War II global economic order that was hatched at the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Officially, the IMF is tasked with stabilizing exchange rates, avoiding competitive devaluations, and helping to balance the expansion of world trade. Historically, the fund has operated by providing short-term loans to countries in serious financial trouble to help stabilize currency and avoid economic collapse. 
While the IMF has played an invaluable role in stabilizing global capitalism, it has also historically acted as a tool for economic imperialism. Because the IMF is a lender of last resort, it only interacts with developing countries that are in such serious financial trouble that they are unable to get financing from private banks or other financial institutions. Because of the incredibly weak position that debtor countries are in when they approach the IMF for loans, the fund is able to make huge demands in exchange for offering credit. In exchange for providing short-term loans to help developing countries weather short-term crises, droughts, famines, natural disasters, or diseases, the IMF has historically demanded that debtor countries agree to structural adjustment programs. Proponents of these structural adjustment programs argue that they are designed to help developing countries emerge from poverty and establish more stable domestic economies. But in practice, rather than compelling developing countries to make and adopt more stable and sustainable financial practices, these structural adjustment programs demand that developing countries take steps that inextricably tie them to global markets and adopt a specific brand of failed capitalist economic reforms. Specifically, the IMF traditionally demands that developing countries cut spending on social services like schools and hospitals to free up funds to build roads and power plants to service multinational corporations, to reform tax structures, to allow rich investors to accumulate wealth and multinational corporations to take their earnings out of the country, to agree to free trade deals and open their markets to foreign goods even if those imports have devastating impacts on farmers and other local producers, to privatize and deregulate public goods like schools, healthcare systems, utilities, roads, and even water, to provide legal security for private property above virtually all other rights. Needless to say, these policy prescriptions have not helped to stabilize developing economies. Instead, these IMF-imposed structural adjustment policies have caused even further destabilization for developing economies. And more significantly, they have opened the doors for multinational corporations to come into developing countries to exploit people and resources. IMF loans rarely turn out to be quick fixes for developing countries facing severe economic trouble. Instead, as debtor nations are unable to pay up on the impossible terms of their loans, they sink deeper and deeper in debt, falling into a condition of perpetual debt. Who is in control? The IMF's day-to-day -day operations are carried out by an executive board and an international staff under the leadership of a managing director and three deputy managing directors. The powers of the executive board are delegated to it by the Board of Governors on which all 184 member countries are represented. Decision-making at the Board of Governors level happens on a $1 one-vote basis which allows wealthier countries to maintain firm control of the fund's operations. Currently, the U.S. is the most powerful member country, controlling 17% of the voting power at the Fund's Board of Governors. Together, the G8 countries control around 48% of the voting power at the Fund's Board of Governors. The G20 in Pittsburgh. The G20 has always operated under a cloak of secrecy, and this fall's meetings will be no exception. The major issues on the table at the upcoming G20 summit in Pittsburgh on September 24th and 25th will likely be the administration of the $1.1 trillion bailout package and a likely overhaul of the International Monetary Fund. Particularly, 
Emerging economic powers from the global south who are being asked to pony up a large portion of the bailout will be posturing to make a power play to seize more power at the International Monetary Fund. At the same time, weakened economies that are likely to become recipients of loans from the fund are hoping to push for reforms that would make it friendlier and give it less power over debtor countries. And, of course, the G8 countries that have been shaken hardest by the global economic crisis will be struggling to maintain their firm control over the global financial system. Certainly, this summit is likely to be more contentious and multi-sided than previous meetings. That whichever side emerges the victor, one thing is sure. All of the players at the table are desperate to resuscitate the global capitalist system and give a boost to one group of wealthy investors or another. For updates on the resistance to the G20 meeting in Pittsburgh, check out the following websites. The Pittsburgh G20 Resistance Project can be found at resistg20.org. InfoShop News can be found at news.infoshop.org. Anarchist News can be found at anarchistnews.org. The Greater Pittsburgh Anarchist Collective can be found at gpacattack.org. And the Pittsburgh Organizing Group can be found at organizepittsburgh.org. The secret is to really begin. Make plans. Be ready.